Good morning, good morning. The Gospel of Mark and in chapter 12 this morning, I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me there. I am glad to see every single one of you here. Welcome, welcome. It's good to see you. What is that bright light in the sky? I mean, it has been a while since we have seen that. Today is the first Sunday in April, and so I was asked to uh, present the book of the month, and I was excited to do that. Um, And I commend to you um, Onward uh, by Dr. Russell Moore, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Uh, Dr. Russell Moore and his wife Maria have adopted five sons. Um, He is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission with the Southern Baptist Church. I was reading this book last year. I bought it at a conference. And several times as I was reading it, I was thinking, like, you guys got to hear this. You got to know this. You got to read this. We're going to accomplish the vision that God has called us to impacting this community with the good news of Jesus Christ. We've got to know our culture, and yet we cannot water it down in any way. Uh, Dr. Moore does a phenomenal job in doing just that. He says this, and I quote in the leaflet, Our message will, see, will be seen as increasingly freakish to American culture. And isn't that true? He writes, Let's embrace the freakishness, knowing that such freakishness is the power of God unto salvation. You are weird. You are freaks. Because you uh, present a gospel that includes what? That we live in a broken, sin-filled world. And people have to acknowledge that in order for there to be a savior um, accepted into their life. And so I would encourage this. Uh, We are limited in copies downstairs. Make sure you are wise stewards um, of the books. Read them, bring them back so that others can read them. That being said, I am excited to get into this text on an amazing subject, a challenging subject when we speak of the resurrection, but we will see how the word of God, in a sense, shows us the power of God as demonstrated by and through the resurrection. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we commit our time and ask for the Lord to lead us as we learn together. Father, we come with our heads bowed into your presence, acknowledging your authority over us. I thank you for every person that is here. I thank you, Lord, that you are here with us, that you have given to us your perfect and powerful word. As it is open now before us, as we will read it, I would ask, Lord, that you would open eyes and ears to see and to hear. Lord, may we be reminded of the hope that exists, the encouragement it is to know what awaits us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give us strength to live faithful lives and obedient lives that show others the power of Christ to change and transform. Father, I, I, I just plead and beg that you would Guard me in my mind and my mouth as I speak. May everything that, that is spoken be for your glory and your glory alone. We love you. We thank you, Lord, for graciously and patiently loving us. 
We ask, Lord, that you would bless, that you would speak, and we would hear. We ask this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen and amen. Okay, little little quick review. Some of us perhaps joining for the first time. Welcome, welcome. Uh, we have been in a series uh, for a little while in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are presently in the time um, between Sunday where Jesus rode in on a little donkey and people were shouting, Hosanna, um, and Friday where the same people will be shouting, crucify him or kill him. So we're in this, it's referred to as Passion Week. We're in the, the days in between. We're probably around Wednesday. And, and we think about like what transpired, what took place that people were shouting Hosanna and then they're, they're shouting crucify. Like what happened? This is what happened, okay? These messages were taught. Truth was spoken and people oftentimes don't like the truth and so they get angry as a result of it. Many of the people were being influenced by the Jewish religious leaders who constantly were attacking Jesus. They were using a very effective tactic of warfare, okay? You attack in what? Wave after wave after wave, eventually just wearing down, exhausting your enemy. That's what they're trying to do, trying to wear Jesus down, exhaust him, frustrate him, get him to to do something or say something that will trap him or trip him up in some way. They've done it with a series of questions, challenging questions, and a series of challenging topics. Today there's another topic. We could say it's a hot topic. It's the subject of resurrection, life after death. Let me begin by asking you this question. What happens in the life after this life? You do realize, okay, I hate to be the bearer of good of bad news, um, but the statistics on death are rather impressive. One out of one people die. You have on average 78.8 years. Gals, you are expected to generally live a little bit longer than the guys, but that's, don't get your hopes up. In a sense, we know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we have been created in the image of God. There is what a portion of, of us, our soul, that is created eternal, that is going to live on after our body gets buried or burns. It's going to live eternally in one of two places, either a literal hell, separated from God, or a literal heaven. If you've given much thought... There are places and portions of scripture that describe heaven for us. Have you given much thought on that? We do read of pearly gates and we do read of golden streets. And, and we've kind of added to that. We, we kind of envision people wearing like white robes. Where that came from, I, you know, I don't know. And soft music playing the whole time. Maybe Willow will be playing her heart for us. We don't know for sure. But beyond that... It's hard to, 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 to think always of the heavenly without bringing in an earthly understanding. And so we begin to ask questions like, like what are we going to be doing there? Like, how are we going to be living and what are we going to be eating? Are we working? Are we singing? Are we worshiping? Who will be there? What relationships will, will we have? Have you given much thought of the resurrection. I was reading this week and I quote uh, Pastor John MacArthur. He says this, Isn't it wonderful to think about the resurrection? 
that this is not the end. That this is not the way we're going to be forever in any sense. Physical, spiritually, we're going to have a glorified body, perfect in every way and in form. And more more importantly, perfect internally in spirit. We will be perfect lovers of God, perfect worshipers of God, perfect lovers of one another. We'll have perfect knowledge. We'll be perfectly motivated to do perfect service, rendering perfect obedience and doing it all with absolute undiminished joy. And we'll do that forever and never, ever have to take a deep breath. We'll never be weary. We'll never be tired. We'll never be bored, never be discouraged, never be disappointed. Joy upon joy upon joy upon joy. And when we are raised, just that we won't leave anything up to speculation, Jesus says in Philippians 3.20, he will transform the body of our lowly or our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has given even to subject all things unto himself. Just a little glimpse, the pause on the subject of what awaits as we offer our life to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today in our text, there's a question that that is asked, and it's it's not a question that is asked with, hmm, I wonder. They truly don't wonder. They're asking a question with a purpose, what? There's an agenda, there's an intent behind it. It's a a devious, deviant question. Hoping to trap Jesus in his words, to trip him up, to trap him, to get him to say something that will incriminate him. Then they can put him to death. Follow along as I read in our text, Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 12, um, verse 18 through verse 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, it left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Two points this morning. The first one is this, very clear. We see it in our text. Jesus is asked a trick question. 
Jesus has asked a trick question. It is a, what, theoretical question. What would happen if? Let me pause and note here that, that in this case, it is a really, really, really big if. It stems from the premise that, what, if a man is married but dies, According not only to Jewish custom, but if you go back to Mosaic law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, there is what provision that what the widow, if she has no children, is to be given to the brother of the man who died. He would take her, marry her, and, and provide for her, protect her, and protect the family line. It seems simple enough. But then what happens if he died and she were to marry another brother. And then he died and she married another brother, etc., etc., so that there were seven successive, they referred to as leveret marriages. The question is this, in heaven, whose wife will she be? Now, although this is a really, really big if, in all honesty, it, it at first read, seems like a pretty good question. How can one woman and seven men be married in heaven? Well, to begin with, we have to ask, why are they asking this question? They, they have been and will continue to be trying to trick Jesus. We know the why. They're trying to corner him in some way that he's, he's stuck. But in this particular context, we have to kind of find out, like, who, and who are these guys anyway? Who's asking the question? Says the Sadducees. Just to keep things straight, we've learned about the Pharisees. They are the right, okay, right-wing, kind of legalistic, theologically-minded, astute scholars. We, we've talked last week about the Herodians that are the left-leaning, kind of the, the progressive liberals, they're politically minded. They are certainly in Herod's camp. They're pro-Rome in every way. And now we have this group here, the Sadducees. Sadducees are mentioned only 14 times in the entire New Testament. The Pharisees are mentioned over 100 times. Sadducees are mentioned one time in the Gospel of Mark, and it is in this occasion. In verse 18, it says what? The, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection... Just so you understand a little bit, the Sadducees are not a large group. They're a small group by way of the, the number of them. But they exerted great influence and power, both religiously and politically. And they derive all of their authority as a result of the activities of the temple. As a matter of fact, when the temple is destroyed, they are simply gone. They disappear. We know that they're highly educated. They all are very wealthy. They're rich. They held prominent positions, they're aristocratic, they're, they're sophisticated. The problem is this, no one liked them. No one wanted to be around them. When it came to the common person, okay, the Pharisees actually connected more with the general crowd than these guys did. They held a really strange view of religion and of scripture. They do not believe um, of anything when it comes to that which is unseen. So they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. There was nothing that existed of the spiritual realm. They certainly did not believe in the resurrection. 
So they're liberal in their understanding of, of the truth of Scripture, but they're, they're, they're completely freakish uh, uh, legalists when it comes to the law itself. They would be more strict than the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees are upset because a guy got healed on Sunday, on the Sabbath. Okay, The Pharisees would be upset if you carried the weight of more than two figs on the Sabbath. And these guys are more strict than they are. Josephus, the historian, writes this by way of a description of the Sadducees. They were cruel in matters of the law. They were more savage than the other Jews. The Pharisees are more lenient than these guys. Oh, they must be so much fun at camp. Think about that. And yet, of their belief system, they clearly do not believe in the resurrection whatsoever. There's many Old Testament references to the resurrection. It's interesting, the majority of them take place after the first five books. And the Sadducees, get this, they only recognized Scripture as the first five books, the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So anything that was written outside of those five books, they're like, nope, does not exist, it's not real, it's not God's Word. Just think about these guys. They are, for the most part, annihilists. When you die, that's it. Worm food. You cease to exist in every way. What a fatalist. What a depressing. What a sad existence. Even the Pharisees believe in the resurrection, but these guys, they did not. They begin with this, teacher, it is a term that is, that is clearly used to show honor, but they have no intent on honoring him. They have no desire to actually learn from this teacher. Instead, they're coming at him with a hostile intent. And they say this, Moses wrote for us. And they are correct, referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, and of course we know the whole scenario that I presented to you. But what, the, what the Sadducees did here is they're presenting a hypothetical case that was clearly intended to trick. It's actually a kind of argument that is known by the Latin phrase reductio ad absurdum or reduction to the absurd. Listen to this. It tries to show that some basic belief cannot possibly be true because the implications seem absurd, absolutely ridiculous. Although hypothetical, it is possible, and if God put this law in there, which no one argued God did put it in there, then it would be silly to believe in the resurrection because look at what could happen. Therefore, their case is what? There cannot be a resurrection. That's their idea. I am certain that if we were part of that crowd, kind of close by, listening and looking in at the Sadducees, asking questions, that these guys are like, kind of like, they're chuckling and snickering amongst themselves. Like, we got him. We finally have trapped him. In a sense, it's almost like a riddle that it's like, maybe he can't answer it. One of the commentaries I read this week says this, 
um, it, it is the same type of question that every Sadducee's son asked every Pharisee's son in grade school. In a sense, it's kind of like, can you figure this one out? Every person would be completely stumped by this until they encountered Jesus. Number one, he is asked a trick question. Number two, Jesus gives a tough, tough answer. What did he say? What is his response here? I want you to follow this word by word, step by step. I love, I love Jesus' response. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Trying to ask a question to trap him. He repeats what he says in in verse 24. He says it again in verse 27. After his defense, he says, you are quite wrong. Here it is. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Thus, before we go any further, the importance for you and I to know the truth, the full truth of the word of God. Because when we know this, we get a glimpse of the power of God as proven as we will see through the resurrection. You are wrong. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You are quite wrong. This is as forceful and as direct an indictment as there could ever be. Jesus says the problem is you're ignorant. You're ignorant in your understanding of scripture and as a direct result of your ignorance, you have no idea about the power that exists in who God is. Notice always a connection between the word of God and the power of God. The the, the question intended to trick or to trap. Jesus responding, no, you're wrong. These guys, like as brilliant as they think they are, as powerful, as, as prominent, as intelligent, as wealthy, Jesus says, you guys aren't even close. You ever been in a classroom? Remember when you were kids in a classroom and a teacher would ask a question, okay? And then somebody like raised her, oh, oh, I know the answer, I know the answer, I know the answer. And, and the student gives an answer to the question the teacher asks, but the student is like totally wrong. Like in every way, it's not even close. Now a teacher doesn't want to discourage the student, certainly doesn't want to like deface them and, and the rest of the crowd. They, they, they want to teach, they want to build up, they want to uh, encourage in some way. And so there's usually a response like this. Teacher would say something to a, a kid who's just like completely bombed the, 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 the question. The teacher would usually say, well, I've never really thought of it like that before. Usually that's some kind of a response or something like this. Well, that's, a, that's a really interesting answer. Or, or how about this? I remember actually hearing this one. Does anyone else have anything to add to what Timmy just said? <laughs> You know, teachers trying to be like, in this case, this setting right here, <laughs> Jesus is not concerned about that. He's like, you're wrong, dead wrong. 
The NIV says this, you are badly mistaken. The New American Standard says you are greatly mistaken. The New Living says you have made a serious error. I have to be honest that my favorite uh, translation in this particular verse comes from the old King James, and it says this, and I quote, Ye therefore do greatly err. What a great response. Ye therefore do greatly err. Score at E6. You just booted the ball. You're not even warm. You're not on the same planet. Jesus is giving a tough answer here. And it's hard for them to hear. Why? Because it's truth. The truth hurts. There's no doubt that people struggle. They even get angry and upset when you tell them the truth. Last Saturday I got in the mailbox Time Magazine. For probably the last 20 years I've got Time on and off again. I I read it. It's a left, liberal-leaning And I read it to kind of understand our world a little bit better. This is the way people are thinking. And and over 20 years, I've I've canceled it over and over again. Oh, I read something. I'm like, get rid of this. Last Saturday, some of you may have seen it. Is truth dead? Three words. It's really a takeoff of April 7th, 1966. You may have remembered this, those of you that are not young. It was before I was born. Um, quoting what Friedrich Nietzsche, when he asked the question, he's a 19th century German philosopher, and, and he, he asked the question, is God dead? And, and so the question today is, is truth dead? Like, just because someone says it, I don't necessarily believe it, so it must not be true. And so it's this pluralistic, relativistic world that we live in. Is truth dead? Is God dead? Everyone seems to want God dead and truth dead. Because you will constantly be confronted with things. You'll hear things that you don't like to hear. In a sense, Jesus stands up in this setting and says, guess what? There is truth. And there is God. And he makes it very, very clear. He's not not having it when it comes to this argument. He answers in further details in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. What do we mean by this? Uh, On Friday evening, this coming Friday evening, I will stand in the front of a chapel and I will pronounce John and Alyssa, husband and wife. And before I do that, I will read vows that they will recite in front of God and the presence of these witnesses for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health. And before I declare them or pronounce them husband and wife, I will say this vow exists only until what? Until death shall separate you. Or until death do you part. Which means if one or both of them die, the vow is null and void. It doesn't last any longer. Married on earth, but not married in heaven. Now, wait a minute. In all honesty, yeah, I, I don't like to hear that. That's hard. People have a hard time with this. Wendy was 12 years old. I was 13 when we met. 
when he was 20 years old. I was 21 when we got married. We, we, have, we have spent the majority of our lives together. We do everything together. We eat together. We sleep together. We travel together. We've raised a family together. Food tastes better when she's sitting here with me. Like that's the design that God has given. At 12 o'clock noon, on August the 12th, this coming summer, we'll be married 28 years. Overwhelming majority of my life. And, and I'm going to like, she's not going to be my wife in heaven. This is hard to hear. Why? Because interpersonal relationships in heaven are similar to the relationships of angels. She won't be my bride. Why? Because together we, as what? The church are the bride. And we will be enjoying and celebrating the love of that marriage to the bridegroom Jesus for all of eternity. Jesus who came to rescue us in spite of in the desperate plight of our sinfulness and our imminent death. What does the bridegroom do? The bridegroom stands, the groom stands at the front and he's done all of the work. And, and the bride wife walks adorned in all of beauty and purity. She's prepared herself to be what? To be offered. That's the relationship that we will enjoy for all of eternity. I love the description of this in, in Isaiah. It says in chapter 61, verse 10, I will, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Wow, beautiful picture. So we're like, okay, okay. So no, no marriage in heaven, but now there's this reference to angels. Why? Wait a minute. Sadducees don't believe in they don't believe in any of the spirit realm. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's rubbing it in their face and giving them what I refer to as a double dose of their own ignorance. By, by in a sense, reference, referencing angels. And he adds to this, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? And where is he going? He's going back to, wait a minute, they only recognize five books. And he goes back to Exodus, and we know that it's in Exodus in chapter 3 when Moses is standing before the burning bush and God speaks to him. Do they hold Moses in high regard? You better believe it. They esteem Moses like, whoa, it's Moses. Moses. And he takes them back to that, and he quotes what God says at that very moment, standing before the burning bush. And God spoke to him saying, what? I am, I am. Notice present tense. I am the God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Certainly they revered Moses. But if you recall, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Check the order here. 
Moses comes long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, right? They should be dead, but no. If I am, then they are. He's bringing them to the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been resurrected like you people do not believe. And in a sense, he takes it right to them. I am, God says, presently. Therefore, we understand Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive because they've been resurrected in Moses' time, then we can be sure that in the resurrection, God will raise up anyone's body who has put their faith and their trust and share in the blessedness of eternal life. God's promise, see this and hear this, God's promise is to, to save his, his people would be pretty weak. God's promise to save mankind would be weak if it was what? Stopped or shattered by death. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this. It would be a tawdry salvation. Ferguson's from Scotland. And so he uses words like tawdry. He says this. It would be a tawdry salvation which lasted only for this life. In a word, in a word, Jesus is saying what? If you deny the resurrection as they are trying, then you deny the existence of God himself. And what they have intended to trick or to trap him, he has turned it around and tricked and trapped them. You don't mess with the master teacher, the one who is in final authority. Today we pause pause on the resurrection. We pause on the hope that is offered. How, how do we, in a sense, take this? Okay, like, okay, so we have this. No doubt Jesus has asked a trick question. We got it. Jesus answers with a, a really tough response, a tough answer. But what do we take here from this text? This is not, this text is not about who is or who is not married in heaven. Okay, that's like a smaller sub-point here. The big point, what, two words come to mind. The first one is this, the importance of accuracy. And the fact that what? We have got to know the word of God. And we have to be what? We have to be, we have to strive to know all of it, not portions of it. You can't be like the Sadducees. Yeah, we, we like this part, but we don't like this part. Yeah, yeah, we're not going there because I don't like it. That's not it. We're students of the word. Every day, dads, fathers, husbands. You are sitting down with your children and you're reading this. You're memorizing and meditating on it. You're putting it on little little three by five cards. You put it up in front of you all over the place. Write it on the, write it on the walls of your house. You, you, you know why it's important to be accurate with the whole truth of the word of God. We know the importance of what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, what? That you are to be ready always to give an answer or to make a defense to anyone asking a reason, why do you have such hope? Why do you have such hope? Why is it that you're not worried and, and fearful like everyone else? Why is it that you're not so stressed, depressed? Why is it that you have such hope of that which is to come? You need to be ready. You need to know the word. You have to be accurate. Secondly, what? Not only accuracy, but authority. Know the power that exists in the word of God. 
It is proven by the resurrection. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Two weeks, two weeks from today, we will all gather together in one service. And what a delight and joy it always, always is to be we will celebrate what? He's not dead. He's risen. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, you too, regardless of your track record, regardless of your past, regardless of the foolish decisions that every single one of us have all made, regardless of the horrible things that we've said or done, you can be forgiven by the only one who has the power to save. We confess our sins and we repent. And we look forward to life, life in heaven for all of eternity. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us in your power to be obedient and faithful to your word. In your name we pray, amen. Stand with us as we close.